Well, morning again. To those visitors, my name is Derek. I'm one of the elders here. And um, I'm privileged to bring you God's word this morning from 1 Corinthians 10. Now, I know it's a little bit cool in here. So um, please make sure you sit close to each other. Or if you have to, get up and get a warm cup of coffee. Um, we're not quite sure how the heating works. We've tried to switch it on, but I'm not sure that it's working. And as David alluded, um, great photo on the, the corner post of a, of a donkey that's completely overloaded. And I thought an appropriate way to open this to talk about carrots. So I want to ask you if you have ever heard the saying, let me tell you where David has buried the carrots. Now this is an Afrikaans saying that says, Laat ek jou vertel wat David die wortels begraaf het. And when we came over to Australia, there'd only be a few that understood that, but when we came over to Australia, I translated this saying directly, and I used it a few times. But I very soon found out that people were looking at me very perplexed, and I then tried to explain, but it got worse, and it was very awkward. And I soon realized that I've made the mistake of assuming that this general truth is held across the world, and that everybody uses this saying, they would understand what I'm talking about. But I was wrong. My assumption was wrong. And so just to stop you from wondering, it means, let me tell you where David has buried the carrot, it means I know specific uh, knowledge, I'm in the know, now let me tell you what's going on. So I know where the, the carrots are buried, now let me tell you where they are buried. But there's also other sayings that is universal. And we kind of take these sayings on and we don't always think about are they true or are they not true? One of them are, good people go to heaven. I think we've all heard that. And mostly we say, yes, that sounds about right. Another one is, God will never give you more than you can handle. Or a variation of that is, your troubles will never be more than what you can handle. God will not give you more than you can handle. And we kind of grow up with hearing this non-specific thing and we start saying it ourselves. But we never stop to think, are these things really true? What does the Bible say about this? And if anything, the saying about your troubles will never be more than you can endure is probably something that I want to be true because it's so comforting to say to somebody that's going through a difficult time. And perhaps you have used that saying. So the, the, the second text reading we read this morning, we want to look at first. And when you ask anybody, where does this saying about your troubles will never be more than you can endure, where does that come from in the Bible? They will point to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. But what we'll see this morning is that what verse 13 teaches is completely different 
to what the saying says. So we'll, we'll first see the truth about troubles. What does God say about troubles in this world? And then we will go and look at 1 Corinthians 10. So 2 Corinthians 1, the second text that we read. I want to point you there to verse 8 and 9. Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. They, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired for life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So do you notice what Paul is saying here? He says that hardships and troubles far beyond their ability to endure is what they experienced. The Greek word translated as despair is, can also mean uh, no passage. So it means the situation they had in front of them, they could not see a way through. So what does this do to our saying, God will not give you more than you can handle? So by just referring to this one text, it completely blows it out of the water. Don't you agree? And Paul, in verse 9, explains why. He says that we go through these overwhelming troubles that is beyond our ability so that we do not rely on ourselves, but so that we rely on God. So it's true then, God does give us these difficult situations that is beyond our ability. So that's the first thing we want to address this morning, is the, the false perception that I or you have the ability to deal with everything that's, that you encounter in this world. That is not true, it is not biblical. God gives us trials, and trials can be scary, but the purpose of trials is for us. It shows us if we have a living faith. The other difficult or impossible thing is God's law and His commands. But the law is the standard of God's holiness, and it acts like a mirror for us to look and, and see what our condition is. So now with that bit of clarity, we can turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and look at the first 13 verses. But just before we start, let's just step back from these 13 verses and look at a bit of the structure of those 13 verses. A few things that I've noted is that verse 1 to 11, Paul talks about Israel's history and he uses examples to show how they have misused the freedom that God has given them. They have just been freed from slavery in a miraculous way. But then there's these severe warnings of idolatry, immorality, and even complaining. Verse 1 to 4, I notice that Paul's addressing everybody. The word all is repeated five times, or four times, depending on what translation you read. And then in verse 12 and 13, it changes to you. The, the word you is repeated eight times. 
So he starts by addressing everybody and showing the examples, but then when it gets to the application, it becomes very personal. He's nearly pointing the finger at you. How does this apply to your life? What does this truth mean in your life? And so we know Paul was writing this letter to the church in the Corinthians, and for them, the readers of his words, that was very personal. And of course, this morning, we are the readers of his letter. So this should be very personal to us. All right, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. But just before we do that, some more background. Let's look at the situation in Corinth. So Corinth was, was a, a major trade city in southern Greece. It was quite a wealthy city. It was also known for its pagan religions. One example is the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And it's known that there was a thousand temple priestesses. And they have the function as religious prostitutes. So the most serious problem of the Corinthian church was their worldliness. And what Paul keeps writing to them about is their unwillingness to divorce themselves from the worldliness around them. And so that helps us to put these warnings that he writes about in context. He's not warning them for nothing. He's warning them because he's got serious concerns. This unwillingness of the Corinthians church has affected their marriages. It affects their diet, the food they eat. They worship because idolatry is mixed in. It affects their Christian freedom. It affects their spiritual gifts. So we've got a bit more clarity and a bit more background. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. But I need to stop just once, once more. Before we start, we should pray. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, through your Son, we pray that the truth of your word will be open to us this morning in simplicity. We pray that you give us ears to hear this message and that each one of us will honestly examine whether we are personally in relationship with you. I pray that anyone sitting here this morning, anyone who does not know whether they have eternal life, anyone that doubts, that they would be deeply affected by your word and not leave this morning without crying out to you and receiving your salvation and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the language Paul uses here to start baptized in Moses doesn't mean that there was a secret baptism. It's purely a way of saying that they were completely immersed in the leadership of Moses. They were completely following Moses. He also confirms that all of Israel, every single person, enjoyed the protection of the cloud 
and was saved passing through the sea. There was no preferential treatment. Everybody received the same protection and the same salvation. Verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So he builds on his first idea of physical sustenance or protection and salvation, and he confirms now that they were also spiritually cared for in food and in drink. In other words, comprehensively cared for by the Lord. They, re they received everything they required spiritually. And then he confirms that it was Christ that was providing this. You know, often as a, as a young Christian, I imagined God the Father being there in the desert. But as I grew in my understanding, it's always been Jesus. It's always been Christ. He was there with them, with each one of them. So historians say that this group of Jews were plus minus two million in total. So imagine this group of two million Jews tracking through the sea and being in the desert. And Paul here is confirming under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that each one of them, without anyone being excluded, were spiritually and physically cared for by the Lord. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So it's a dramatic change in, in the scene. So even though Jesus was providing for them physically, spiritually, he was not pleased with most of them. In fact, he was not pleased with all of them but two. Joshua and Caleb. And so roughly two in two million is a staggering ratio. It's a very concerning ratio. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So in other words, these things that he's talking about, these examples are recorded as a warning to the readers of Paul's letter. He's mentioning this as a warning. Paul is reminding us of the past. He's saying, learn from the past. How do we apply that? I'd say learn from your parents. Learn from your grandparents. Look back at history and learn. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Do not forget. And so from verse 7, we move into the warnings now. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So this relates to the events of Exodus 32, and verse 6 is specifically quoted here. And this is where Aaron collected all of the gold, and he formed it into a golden calf, while Moses was on the mountain with God, receiving the law. 
and they um, had a festival in front of the calf. They, they ate too much, they drank too much, and they got out of control. But the idolatry came in where they announced a feast to the glory of God the next day, and in a twisted, bizarre way, they thought bringing sacrifices on this altar before the golden calf would be acceptable worship to God. And that, that is the idolatry. And of course, that's against the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he continues in verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. So this is still in Exodus 32, and when Moses came off the mountain, the people were running wild. They were out of control. And Moses had to get them back under control. So he instructed the Levites to pick up their swords and go through the camp. And 3,000 of them were killed. 3,000 of the Israelites. By the Levites. By the, the faithful Levites. But this was not all. Because next, the Lord punished them with a plague for what happened with the golden calf. And another 20,000 died. 23,000 in total. The next warning, verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So this refers to the events of Numbers 21, where they were in the desert and became complainers. They were not happy with the way that Christ was providing for them physically and spiritually. And so they were unthankful. They complained. They were grumbling. And so these snakes came and bit them, and many of them died. And when they realized their sin, they repented. And the Lord listened. But the Lord did not take the snakes away. He provided instruction to Moses to say, make a bronze snake, a brazen snake, and lift it up on a pole, and those that look upon the snake will survive, will live. It's a very bizarre event. And God willing, next Sunday, we'll look at this event, and we'll see where Christ is in this and how it's connected to one of the most famous verses, John 3.16. But in this context, it's a warning against grumbling and testing God. Verse 10, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now the Hebrew word malak mashid means destroying angel. And from what I could find, there's four places where the destroying angel was released by God to execute his judgment. One of those were in our example that relates to number 16, where Korah and his followers came in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And the next day when they appeared before the Lord, the earth opened up and Korah and all his followers were swallowed up. But that was not the grumbling. The next day, the people continued to complain. 
And so the Lord punished them through a plague and 14,700 of them died. So this is terrible. We're talking about, I don't know where the death tally is right at the moment, but there's thousands of people that have died just in these examples. The three other examples of the destroying angel is with Passover in Exodus 12, where the destroying angel moved through Egypt and struck down the firstborn and executed God's judgment on the gods of Egypt. The third is 2 Samuel, when David ordered an unsanctioned census. And the punishment was three days of suffering a plague. But when David looked in the spirit, he saw the angel standing with a sword in his hand. And that's when David repented. But 70,000 died of that plague. And 2 Chronicles 32, where the Lord released the destroying angel to annihilate the Assyrian armies. And in one night, 185,000 died. Staggering numbers. But I think Paul is specifically making this a grave, grave warning. This is very vivid. And if you go and study what has actually happened in each one of these warnings, it is terrible. We cannot glaze over these warnings and say, yes, he just gave three warnings. This is God's chosen nation. He saved them out of Egypt. But this is what his judgment looks like. This is what is the wrath that is burning against our sin. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the age has come. These things may seem unrelated and senseless. It may seem that it's a bloodthirsty God. I've read commentators that that's all they can see. They can see an angry God that is bloodthirsty. That's all they see. But we'll see this morning that it's not senseless. It happened within God's purpose. And it was recorded within God's purpose to stand as an example till the end of time. Not just for the Corinthian church, but for every Christian church ever since. For every Christian this warning stands and it will continue to stand as a warning for us to listen. Do not think that our God is not serious. It's a warning for us to wake up. We live in a country with so much comfort. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls that cheap blessing because we think the comfort we have is God's blessing forgetting about the work that he's done, forgetting about our sinful condition. We live after Christ, and we have the benefit that we can look back in the shadow of the cross to what has happened to Israel. But that doesn't mean that this warning doesn't apply to us anymore. In the same way that they were saved out of Egypt, we have been saved by Christ. And we are living in His grace, saved. But are we grumblers? 
Are we grumbling like Israel has grumbled? Are we taking the freedom Christ has given us for granted like they have? Are we immoral like they were? Can you see that we have received the exact same spiritual food and drink that they have? And our question this morning is, are we guilty of this? Verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. For me, I nearly hear Paul's sarcasm in this sentence. Because he's talking about overconfidence. He's talking to the proud to those who have confidence in themselves. He's just listed all of these examples and these warnings where Israel was following their own evil hearts. He said they did this because they were setting their hearts on evil things. Verse 6. So if you think you are standing firm, if you think that good people go to heaven then be careful. Be 100% sure that you are standing firm because that ratio of 2 and 2 million is against you. God was not pleased with most of them. Proverbs 16 verse 18 warns that pride goes before destruction and arrogance before a fall. So he's saying this as a finishing thought before he gets to the crux of what Paul's talking about. And just saying, if you don't associate with these warnings, if you don't associate with Israel and think that we are made of the same cloth, all of mankind, we're all in the same boat, then you are mistaken. And so we get to verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the first thing to notice here is that this verse talks about temptation. The chapter doesn't necessarily focus on temptation or the first 13 verses that we've just worked through but verse 13 focuses on temptation and remember what we clarified in the beginning from 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 we do get trouble that it's above our ability so this verse is not teaching that when people point to this verse to say Yep, that's what the Bible says. We will not be given anything above our ability. That's wrong. This verse talks about temptation not overtaking us. Temptation being limited. There's a big difference. We also need to say to each other that experiencing temptation is not sin. We often feel guilty because we're experiencing temptation. But we know that our Lord Jesus was tempted to the full extent 
and yet he was without sin. So that's another wrong uh, thought that kind of just grows in our thinking. Experiencing temptation is not sin. So don't feel guilty when you are going through temptation. We also need to remember what James teaches about temptation in James 1, verse 13. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. So temptation comes from our own evil desires in our heart. That same evil desire that was in the heart of, the, of Israel in the desert. That was the cause of all of those multiple deaths and sin. Is the evil desires in our heart. So what does this mean for us? It means that when we fall in sin, it's because we choose it. We choose that path from temptation. When I sin, it's because I choose it. It's my choice. Why do I say that? Because it means you cannot blame God and you cannot blame the devil. When you choose that specific path from temptation, you cannot say, the devil made me do it. You cannot blame God like Israel tried to. Or at least ask the question, Lord, why have you brought us into this desert? Why have you led us here? It's not valid. Because the temptation has found root in the evil things that is in our heart. So, and, and next, what does Paul mean when he says temptation common to mankind? So Paul here is saying that all of us are in the same boat. Not just all of us sitting here this morning, but all of mankind from the beginning of time to the end of time. And it makes, or it gives more meaning when the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. It means that all through time you will not experience a temptation that hasn't been experienced by somebody before. That's what it means. The Lord has limited temptation to what is common to mankind. I know we feel in temptation, this temptation, nobody's felt it quite as intense as I'm going through it. Or we like to think with technology today, specific temptation is higher or more intense than it's ever been before. But that's just us trying to justify our weakness. Paul here is saying, temptation common to mankind. We are all in the same boat. We are standing shoulder to shoulder with the Israelites in the desert. We are standing shoulder to shoulder with the church of Corinth. So the value in understanding this is, like I said, to be clear that you cannot blame God when you sin. You cannot blame the devil. But it also means that it's not inevitable that every temptation leads to sin. 
temptation in itself is inevitable. We will be tempted. But it's not inevitable that that temptation would lead to sin. Why? Not because we have the ability. Not because we can handle anything that life throws at us. Not because God allows us to handle it. Temptation will not inevitably lead to sin because God acts first. He moves to limit the temptation. And He moves to provide you a way through. So how do we know from this verse conclusively that there's none of our own ability needed in this equation? So from verse 13, the second half, it says God is faithful. That's the, that's the turning point in this dilemma. It starts with God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above your ability. He will provide a way out. Can you see that there is nothing for you to do in this equation? God moves first because He's faithful. He will not let you be tempted above your ability and He will provide a way through. So the correct kind of thinking about this is I'm not strong enough. I've never been strong enough. The only way through temptation is by the grace of God because of what He's done. And we make the mistake to say, you know, what He's done. It's not just on the cross. Yes, it is the cross. But in every moment of every day, in every temptation that you experience, Christ is there. He's there with you. He's limiting the temptation. Even before it reaches you, He's already intervened. And then after that, in His grace, He provides you a way out. In the same way that He provides you a way out of this sinful world into eternity through what He's done on the cross, in the same way he does that how many times every single day in each one of our lives he does that that is what this means our text from paul guides us to look at the history of israel and when we look back we can see that they did not always choose the right way through if there's a way out of every temptation, and we have the choice, then history shows us that they did not always choose the right way out. When we look back to the church in Corinth, we also see that they did not always choose the right way out. When we look back at church history, from the New Testament church to today, we can see that many church leaders, congregations, did not always choose the right way out. Many mistakes, many sin. Many times have they misunderstood God's word. And now we're at the you portion of Paul's teaching. So when you look at your life this morning, do you admit, are you honest with yourselves that you have not always chosen the right way out? 
But remember, it is a great encouragement that when we are facing temptation, these overwhelming temptations sometimes, that Jesus is there with us. Knowing that he's right there with us. Before you even see the temptation or experience the temptation, he's already intervened and made it possible for you to endure. He's made it possible for you to resist that temptation. And on top of that, he gives you a way out. He can do this and he does this because he has been tempted himself to the full extent. His temptation was not limited. But yet he overcome and he's conquered temptation. And therefore he can intervene for us. But if you think that good people go to heaven, that your good works deserve anything, if you think that troubles in your life comes for the purpose so that you can show your strength because God will not test you above your abilities, then I want to say to you, do you not know that there's judgment coming? Do you not know that when Christ comes, he will not be pleased? Do you not know that people will say to him, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We exercised demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. And the Lord will say to them, go away from me, you evildoers. You who have evil in your hearts. And what is this evil the Lord is talking about? It's our self-righteousness. We cannot stop thinking about how good we are and our ability. The Lord, the Lord hates the prideful. But this warning speaks to all of us and reminds us that when you are heading into the storm, who would you rather have there with you? Would you rather face these storms on your own and get a brownie point on your, on your shoulder, so to say? Or would you rather walk behind the creator of all things with him rebuking the winds and limiting the waves? and helping you to walk on water, and showing you the way through. That is what he's offering. Not just in life eternal, but today. In every moment, in every temptation, this is what Paul is teaching. Because of his faithfulness, he is limiting temptation. He, he has taken the deathly sting of sin, the one thing that kills us, is the one thing the Lord has limited. Troubles and trials don't kill us eternally, but sin does. Can you see the Lord's grace? Can you see His mercy? So when we selectively interpret Scripture in the way that we then say, God will not give us more than we can handle, what are we doing? We're taking God's grace and Him moving first, and we're putting ourselves in there. Instead of saying, 
The Lord gives me more than I can handle, but in His strength I will endure. We're saying, no, I've got the strength. The Lord won't give me more than my strength. It changes the focus. And can you see why the Lord is not and will not be happy with that kind of thinking, with that kind of life? Because that is born from evil. It's born from pride in our hearts, the same as Israel. The Lord is faithful. That is his message this morning. He always provides a way out. It is not my abilities or my intellect. It is not your abilities or your strength that gets us through. It is what Jesus is doing every day in your life, in every moment. And if you do not have a personal relationship with him, it means that when you're walking in that storm, you are not talking to Jesus. And that's why he will say he does not know you. Because when it counts, you rely on yourself. And you do not turn to him to ask him, Lord, what is the way out here? I cannot see. He provides a way out into eternity. And if you have doubt this morning, if you have a personal relationship with the Lord, he does promise that Nobody that calls out to him will be turned away. Nobody that seeks a personal relationship with him will be turned away. So cry out to him. Jesus says in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says that about himself. I am the way. He's the only way. So even though your trials and your challenges is more than you can bear. You experience this because God wants to show His strength in your life. He doesn't want you to be strong. He wants you to rely on Him when you are overwhelmed. But He also comforts you by saying, when you're experiencing temptation, that one thing that leads to your eternal death, I have intervened. I have saved you. Not just in eternity, but today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, next week. I will continue to save you by limiting the temptation to what you can bear and providing you a way out. So as we prepare for next week, we're going to have communion next week. And it's, it's this kind of introspection of our hearts that is needed when we come to the Lord's table. So if you do not have that relationship with the Lord, please cry out to Him. Come and speak to any one of the men and women that were up here this morning. Speak to somebody that sits right next to you. But for those of us that do have that relationship with the Lord, use this time leading up to next week to inspect your heart and see how much of this evil is in our heart similar to what Israel had. And to what extent does these warnings talk to you this morning? I pray that the Lord's word this morning has been a blessing to you. Let's pray together.
Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for showing us that you are not just a God that lives in eternity, but also the God that is living with us here in every moment, in every day. And that you walk with us through the winds and through the storms. And that in everything, Lord, you always move first. We thank you for your grace. Such a love that we cannot comprehend. Through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask, please open our hearts. That we may receive you as our Lord and Saviour. So that we may proclaim your kingdom here on earth. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.